I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Psalm 139. I've been looking forward to this one. Psalm 139. Over the last few weeks, Owen, our two-year-old, has been waking up a lot in the middle of the night. Amen. The problem is that whenever he wakes up, no matter what time, he is certain that it's time for breakfast. So it might be midnight, and he's ready for breakfast. might be 3 a.m., and he is insistent it is time to go downstairs to eat. It's been a lot of fun. There's been a couple of times, and the only thing I knew to do besides just going and starting our day at 3 a.m. was to sit in his room and restrain him. Otherwise, he would just go downstairs and start his day. So there was one night for when almost an hour, I held him. And not just cuddling with your son hold, but a squirmy, angry, fighting two-year-old who wanted nothing more than to get out of my arms. The next day, I felt like I had done an upper body workout because for an hour, I just held on. Thank you, Steve. (laughs) There are times during that hour, you get a lot of emotions in that span of time. Impatience, weariness, questioning everything. But there was a few times where I almost laughed because I considered as he fought and squirmed and I would loosen my grip and he would make a quick move. How absurd it was that this guy who weighs less than 25 pounds thought he would get away from me. He was convinced that if he tried hard enough and long enough, he could escape. With no real understanding of how much stronger or clever I am than him. And not only that, he had no idea even as I restrained him, how much I loved him. And that I really did have a better idea of what was best for him than he did. And yet when it comes to God, we're like two-year-olds, aren't we? Quick to forget how strong he is, how wise he is, and that no matter where we go, he's there. We can never get out of his sight, never squirm out of his hold, And we shouldn't want to. But we're quick to forget the vastness of God, aren't we? The extent of his knowledge. The consistency of his presence and the perfection of his care. This morning as we come to Psalm 139, we're coming to a psalm that, for me, maybe more than any part of Scripture, reminds me of the nature of God's involvement in our lives. It's a psalm that I've turned to for comfort, maybe more than any other passage of Scripture in the Bible. It's a psalm that if you have come to me in a time of crisis, there is a really high chance that I have shared this psalm with you in hopes of comforting you. It's a psalm that leaves no doubt about the presence of God and the care of God and His sovereignty. It's a psalm we need because we are so quick to forget about the presence of God and his constant awareness of us and his loving involvement in our lives. 
and forgetting those things has consequences. I want you to consider this before we go to the psalm. Consider the consequences of forgetting the nature of God and his involvement in our lives. Isn't it true that when we think too little of the presence of God, we can be give, more given to temptation? Isn't it true that when we think too little of the presence and sovereignty of God, we will be more impacted by loss than we should be? More ruled by worry than we ought to be? More controlled by fear? Fear increases when we think too little of God and his presence and his care. When we think too little about the presence and sovereignty of God, we can be reluctant to obey because we forget the consequences. The list goes on. So many consequences to having a view of God that's too limited. But Psalm 139 is going to help us this morning because it's going to help us to calibrate our view of God. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 139, it warns us against that practical atheism which ignores the presence of God and leads to shipwrecked souls. Say that again. It warns us against a practical atheism. You know what that means? Living. We, we may say we believe in God, but many of us practically live as if he doesn't exist. Psalm 139, Spurgeon says, warns us against that practical atheism which ignores the presence of God and can lead to shipwrecked souls. So for the sake of our souls, let's turn to the scriptures. Psalm 139. I'll read it, and then we will consider it together. Hear the word of God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day for darkness is as light to you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, 
depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. May God be blessed in the reading and preaching of his word. My guess is that this psalm, or at least part of it, is familiar to you. And I'm sure you notice as we read the psalm that it's packed with theology, chock full of details about the nature and character of God. And we could easily spend the rest of our time today and probably the next several weeks unpacking all the things about God that we learn here in the psalm. It's one of the central texts in the Bible about the omniscience of God. It's a, a word that, that speaks to the the fact that God knows everything. This is one of the preeminent texts on the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere all the time. It's a key text on the creative work of God and his involvement in our, in our formation. It's an important passage on the sovereignty of God and how he interacts with our lives from beginning to end. There's a lot here. And I did consider, I think I told some, some, some of you, this could be a long series, right? So we could just camp out here in Psalm 139 for a while and talk about the omniscience of God for a week and talk about the omnipresence of God for a week and talk about God's sovereign knowledge of us for a week. And maybe we'll do that at some point. But if we were to do that, here's what we could miss. We might miss that this psalm is personal. If we just follow the theology, we might miss that it's not written necessarily to teach us theological lessons. But it's a psalm written from the heart of a man who's been impacted and who is responding to who God is. You may have noticed that the heading given to the psalm tells us the psalm of David and that it was for the choir master. We don't want to hang too much weight on these titles. But tradition tells us that David took this and he gave it and he intended for this to be a psalm that was sung. Our best hymns, the best songs we sing are songs that tell us about the character of God and then praise him or call for a response from us because of who he is. And so, yes, this is a psalm packed full of theology. But our goal this morning is not simply to learn more about God, but to consider how we then should respond to who God is. We should have a response of praise and repentance, humility. We're going to see several things this morning. To consider the structure, the first six verses are about the omniscience of God, his knowledge of everything. The next six verses are about his omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere all the time. So we'll start in verse 1. 
And it's here that we see very clearly that it is a, a personal psalm. That the reality of who God is is personal. The psalm begins, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, we shouldn't read this and think that there was a time when God hadn't searched or hadn't known. No, he's always known everything. His knowledge doesn't start or stop. It doesn't have a beginning point. It's always been. But the verse helps us see this connection between the knowledge of God in our own lives. Makes it personal, doesn't it? It's one thing to say God knows everything. It's another thing to say God knows everything about me. And that's what David acknowledges here at the beginning. He has searched me. He, he, he knows me. He knows everything about me. He knows every move I make. And beyond that, not only does he know everything I do, but he knows every motivation. He knows every thought, every word, spoken and unspoken. That's what we see fleshed out in the next few verses. David teases out this reality of the personal nature of God's omniscience. Verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Merism, do you know that word? It's a, it's a figure of speech where there's two things, and the point is, is that it includes, the, it's a contrast that includes everything in between. That wasn't a very good definition. I didn't write it down. Shooting from the hip. But we see it here in the text over and over and over. The first example of this is when I sit and when I rise, which doesn't mean he only knows when I sit down or he only knows when I get up, but he knows every move I make. He knows if I sit, he knows if I stand, he knows everything in between. There's not a move we make that God is not fully aware of, but not only does he know the moves, but he knows the thoughts behind the moves. He knows the reasons why we move, the motivations and the goals of our movement. He says, you know when I sit, you know when I rise, and you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows when we sit, when we stand, why we sit, and why we stand. And we see the same pattern repeated in verse 3. You search out my path, which is a way of saying my, my going, my traveling, and my lying down, my staying still, my resting. Merism, okay? You know the traveling, and you know the resting. You know where I go, and you know when I stay still, and you know why I go and why I stay still. You are acquainted with all my ways. It's not only knowledge, it's complete knowledge, and it's personal knowledge. Sitting and standing, thoughts known from afar. Searching out my path, my lying down, acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knows our thoughts. He knows our intentions. He knows our motivations. And there's nothing he doesn't know. Which is why David says, I have been searched and I have been known. It's complete. It's per personal. And it's purposeful. Verse 5 is good imagery. He says, you hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Now, 
at this point, and there's a couple other points I'll, I'll, I'll show you, but at this point, we get the first suggestion by many that David's not happy about this situation. And the reason that's suggested is because this idea of being hemmed in, this is um, military terms for being surrounded. So you've got a, an army that's come in from every side and has hemmed in their enemy. This is what David says God has done to him. He has surrounded me. He has blocked me in. He has trapped me. And not only that, but he's laid his hand upon me, which isn't, the word behind this isn't a, a gentle, but a, a forceful hand. And so some have viewed this as a negative thing, a trap. But as I read and kept reading and thinking about Psalm 139, I don't think David is frustrated by God's care. I think this is a strong way of saying, God has surrounded me. And God has put his hand on me. And that is good. It could just as easily be read as a hand of protection. God knows us. He knows us fully. He wouldn't let anyone else get into us. Surrounding, protecting, guarding. I would argue it's a psalm of praise. I mean, isn't that what we see in verse 6? We've got this first section. He's been reflecting on the knowledge of God, the extent of God's knowledge, the personal nature of his knowledge. And then he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I can't attain it. It's wonderful. It's a hard translation here, but it's the idea of a sense of I can't comprehend this. It's, I, I wonder at it. And then we get more military language. It's high. It's the idea of a, a wall that would be hard to scale. The knowledge of God, it's, it's high. I can't get around it. I can't comprehend it. It reminds me of what Paul says at the end of Romans 11. Remember, he's been working through and explaining the nature of God's salvation, his dealing with his people Israel. And then he says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God's wisdom is beyond our understanding. David says, your knowledge of me blows my mind. And I would argue it's a comfort to him. And it should be a comfort to us. The reality that God knows all. There is nothing that surprises him. Nothing that catches him off guard. Isn't that a comfort? That there's nothing that happens that God doesn't know? He's not just reacting he knows before it happens. You're often surprised. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. God does. And we can rest in that. Here's another way this is comforting. Think about the love of God. A love that is based on full knowledge. 
Most of us live most of our lives thinking, if people knew the whole truth about me, they wouldn't love me, they wouldn't even like me. But God knows. And he loves you with full knowledge. That should give us hope and comfort. You are known fully and intimately by God. For those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who are in right fellowship with God, these truths should be a refuge for us. But let me also acknowledge the other side. If you don't know God, if you're not in right fellowship with God, this should be a terrifying reality. If you're here and you're living in rebellion against God, it should be sobering. Because there may be things that you have hidden from everyone else. But God knows. He knows and he sees it all. Not only your actions, but your thoughts and your motivations. He knows what no one else knows about you. He searches and knows you. Think about what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. He says, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The complete knowledge of God. It should be a sobering and fear-inducing reality for those who are living in opposition to him. For those who know and trust him, it should be a comfort. His knowledge of us should be a refuge. That's what it was for David. A source of hope and confidence. God knows me. He has searched me. He has known me. This knowledge is too wonderful for me. He talks about the omniscience of God. And then he transitions in verse 7, this new set of six verses where he talks about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is everywhere. He begins with the question, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Two rhetorical questions. The answer is nowhere. There's nowhere we can go where we will be outside of the presence of God. Again, some have suggested that David's frustrated, right? I want to escape. Where can I go to get away? I don't read it that way. David's not mourning the constant presence of God. No, it's a reality that brings him comfort. Again, he illustrates the point with these contrasts. I can't go high enough. I can't go low enough to escape the presence of God. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He can't go far enough east or west. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. I love the imagery of this verse. If I take the wings of the morning, what's he talking about? He's talking about the the sun rising in the east, right? The sun, if if I take the wings of the morning and then zoom across the sky and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, for those in that part of the world, the sea was always west. The uttermost parts of the sea was that western horizon. So I can go as far as I can go east with the dawn. I can go as far as I can go west with the sunset. And everywhere in between, there's nowhere I can go to escape the presence of God. And here's 
Again, why I would say this is a positive thing, why David considers this a good and a blessed thing. He says, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will hold me. It's good news. No matter where we go, we have the strong and guiding hand of God. Reminds me of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Wherever we go, high or low, east or west, anywhere in between, even there his hand will lead us and his right hand shall hold us. And shouldn't this be the kind of truth that sustains us? I'll admit it. There are times when I'm tempted to feel alone, abandoned. But this is our hope. We can never outrun the presence of God. Wherever we find ourselves, He will be with us. And no other person in your life can give you that kind of guarantee. You may have a spouse that's made vows to you that sound a lot like, a lot like this. But their life is temporary, as is yours. Parents cannot make this promise fully. Best friends cannot promise this kind of presence and care. But God has said, wherever you go, I will be with you. Jesus said it to his disciples, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we can believe this intellectually. I'm never outside of the presence of God. And yet, aren't there times of life when we enter periods of darkness where it seems there is no way he sees us? Do you see verse 11? If I say, maybe you've said, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. David says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Psalm 139 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Verses 11 and 12 are probably my favorite verses in the chapter. Verses I think you should memorize, by the way, if you want homework. Because we all get to points in life that feel bleak and dark, and we can't help but feel alone, forgotten. David knew well. Have you heard this phrase, a dark night of the soul? David had those. He wrote Psalm 6 where he said, I am weary with my mourning, my moaning rather. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David knows what it's like to go through seasons of darkness times when he felt like darkness had covered him, times when even light seems like night. But he says, even darkness is not dark to you. This is good news. When we find ourselves in the dark, God still sees clearly. When we can't see our hand in front of our face, he has a clear view. Because darkness isn't dark to him, and night is as bright as daytime. Dark and light are the same to him. Now, let's think biblical imagery. There are parts of the Bible that darkness is sin and light is holiness. 
And if we take that imagery and apply it here, then we've just said that none of it matters to God. Different images, right? Here, darkness represents this season of life that we get in where it seems like nothing is right. And yet we have this promise that even in the darkness, God sees clearly. When you don't have any idea what direction you're headed or what's around the corner, God sees and knows and he's with you. For those of us who know God, this should be a great comfort. For those of you, perhaps, who are in rebellion against God, this is a warning. The same warning I offered earlier. If you think that your sin is hidden, if you think your rebellion is going unnoticed, friend, God knows and he sees. And there's nothing that's hidden from him. I want you to hear the warning. I also want you to have this hope that God is merciful. He says of himself, I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Yes, he will punish the guilty. But he will also show mercy on anyone who turns to him in faith. Because Jesus died, because he rose from the dead, you can be forgiven. This is what we're going to celebrate as we eat and drink the cup. That all of us are sinners. And none of us could atone for our own sins. Every one of us deserves the judgment of God. And yet, God himself, the one who knows all and sees all, who's everywhere, he, in love, knowing the depths of our hatred for him, sent his son to come and to die. He died as a sacrifice. He bore the wrath of God so that anyone who, who repents, who trusts in God, the Bible tells us, will be forgiven, seen as righteous through the righteousness of Christ. How incredible is this? That the God who knows all and sees all and is the rightful judge of all, would go to such great lengths to show his love and to offer forgiveness. He's not only omniscient and omnipresent. He's a personal God. I think verses 13 through 18 are an illustration of the first two sections. An illustration of God's sovereign knowledge and care. He says in verse 13, 4, he's illustrating what he's just said about the omnipresence of God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Now, this may be the part of Psalm 139 you know the best. It's, it's the pro-life passage, right? And it is an important text when it comes to thinking about when life begins and knowing that God is present and he is active in the work of the womb. This passage, friends, it should compel us to protect life in the womb. To re recognize that to take the life of a baby is to take the life, to take a life that God has created and known. So there are lots of important implications for us from this text for that conversation. 
But as we consider the context, we should see that this is David helping us see an example or an illustration of the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. This is how far God's knowledge goes. He formed you in the womb. This is how far his presence extends. He was there in the darkness of the womb with you. There's no place where you have been where God was not present. Even before you were born, God knew you intimately. And in case you still aren't convinced that this is a positive psalm, a hopeful psalm, look at verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David knows that God is his creator and that his work is good. He praises God for his work of creation. He's praising God for his presence and for his care. Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Imagery to convey, to to help us think about the womb. He says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, as yet when there was none of them. What an incredible description of God's sovereign knowledge of us. Even before your mom knew she was pregnant, he was there forming you. He saw you long before anyone knew you existed. And not only that, but he knew all of your days before a single one of them had passed. Friend, your life is not random. It's not by chance. God knew you. He formed you. He knows all of your days. And again, this should be a source of comfort. You see how David responds in verse 17? How precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. David is not frustrated by the fact that God knows all and sees all. It's quite the opposite. He's marveling at the knowledge and the care of God. That the sovereign God of the universe knows, loves, formed. Reminds me of Psalm 8, another Psalm of David. He says, When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Who are we that the God of all the earth would set his love on us, and yet we know that he does because he's made us, he's formed us, he's known us. We could be tempted to have few or fleeting thoughts of God. David says, the thoughts that God has for you are innumerable. It's an interesting verse. What does it mean that God's thoughts are beyond counting? At the very least, it's the opposite of being forgotten, right? I think it's more than that. He says, your thoughts are precious to me. It's a a thought that David expresses in other places as well. Psalm 40, he says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So we've... Consider the 
knowledge of God. We've considered the presence of God. And here we're told, not only does he know, and not only is he there, but he cares and he thinks about us. He loves us. I'm going to lean on Spurgeon one more time. He says this. When we remember that God thought of us from eternity, that he continues to think of us every moment, and will think of us when time shall be no more, we may well exclaim, how great is the sum of them. Thoughts such as are natural for the creator, the preserver, the redeemer, the father, the friend, are evermore flowing from the heart of the Lord. These are his thoughts, thoughts of pardon, renewal, upholding, supplying, perfecting, and a thousand more kinds perpetually well up in the mind of the Most High. It should fill us with adoring wonder and reverent surprise that the infinite mind of God should turn so many thoughts towards us who are so insignificant and so unworthy. I think that captures the heart of what David is saying here. He knows all, he sees all. This psalm paints for us a big picture of God and then draws us in and connects all that reality about God to his care for us. For those of us who know and trust him, it should be a refuge. For those of us who are forgiven, his presence should be a sweet sanctuary. We should find rest in knowing that every detail of our lives is known and cared for. How does David respond? I think what we've already seen through the psalm is praise. He's praising God for who he is, for how he interacts with us. I think we should respond the same way. To go back to what I said earlier, these kinds of realities about God, they should change the way we live. If we truly believe that God knows all, sees all, and that he's intimately involved in caring for us, it should guard us in times of temptation. Meditating on the knowledge and the presence of God should keep you from sin. These realities should sustain us in times of loss and grief. Because even in our greatest loss, we can trust that we've not been abandoned or forgotten. It should keep us from anxiety and worry because we can know that God is in control and he has known our days before we have lived them. It should temper our fear of things we don't understand. It should propel us to more eager submission and humble obedience. The list could go on. So many ways we could respond to these truths about God. We see as we end the psalm that there are two responses built in. I would say praise would be the, the overriding one. But then we get two responses that form two requests. Two prayer requests at the end of the psalm. After everything that David has considered and said. First, a request regarding the wicked. And second, a request regarding his own heart. Verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. 
I count them my enemies. I heard it said once that if a pastor says, if we had time to cover this, we would, that means he doesn't know what to say, okay? If we had time to cover all this, we would. Hard verses, right? When you have a psalm you love, it's the kind of verses you're like, man, I just wish those weren't there. So, but they're here, and the question is why? What do we do with this part of the psalm? And let me try to give you what I think is the big idea. David has just spent the majority of the psalm praising God and confessing that God knows every thought and every desire. And it seems to me at this point that David wants to ensure that he is fully aligned with this God who he has described. The God who searches and knows every part of the soul. David wants to ensure that he is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And this passage is about those who hate God. Those are the enemies of God. And David, I believe, is aligning himself with God. He's saying, I hate those who hate you. We could go back to the Sermon on the Mount and try to push this together with love your enemies, right? Something that should be worked through, but we know that God's judgment is righteous. His hatred is right. And I believe here David is trying to align himself with God. God, you know everything. You hate every evil. I want to join with you in that. He wants to be fully aligned with God, and we see that most clearly in the final two verses. Notice the connection between verse 1 and verse 23. In verse 1, David acknowledged that God has searched him and known him, and now he ends the psalm by asking God to continue to do that work of searching and knowing. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. There is probably a connection here. There are those who David sees and he is trying to live rightly before God and appropriately live towards those who hate God. And yet he says, but God, search me, right? Know my heart. So I think there is a a close connection between 19 to 22 and 23 and 24, but these two final verses connect to the whole as a natural response to the omniscience and omnipresence of God. We all have parts of our life that we wish could not be seen. We wish there were somewhere we could go to hide. That's natural. That's the flesh. But what I've tried to emphasize throughout the psalm is that David isn't frustrated by God's sovereignty. In fact, David is thankful for the all-knowing and ever-present God. And here he leans in. You see it all. You know it all. Search me. Know me. It's an act of humility, of submission, of obedience. I know you can see it all. Know my heart. Discern my thoughts. Be acquainted with my ways. Know my thoughts, my motives. Search me, know me, try me, test me. See if there's any wicked way in me. It's quite a prayer, isn't it? I wonder if it's a prayer that you could pray honestly today. Show me. Where am I not pleasing to you? Lead me on the everlasting way. Change me. The Bible tells us that as those who have repented and believed in Christ, our aim should be holiness. And if that's our aim, then this prayer makes sense. God, show me where I need to grow. 
show me the places where I still need to repent. I think if we're honest, most of us know those places, don't we? And yet we should push further. And friend, that's a scary prayer perhaps to pray. But know this, you can pray it with the promise that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. So you can come to him with your failings and with your sins. He knows them and he has loved you. He knows them and he sent his son for you. He knows them and he went to great lengths to save you. So come to him. We shouldn't fear this prayer. We should love running into the arms of mercy. David prayed something similar in Psalm 26. He said, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Why can we? How can we pray that kind of prayer? We pray that kind of prayer knowing the steadfast love of God. This was David's response. After taking time to dwell on the character and the nature of God, he responds with loyalty and humility, a desire for holiness and obedience, a longing for the way everlasting. That said, let me just end this way. What are your thoughts of God? Do you have big and true thoughts of God? Or do you try to push out any consideration of his awareness of you? How often do you think of the fact that he knows all and sees all? How often do you consider that he is always with you? If you're here and you have never trusted in Christ for forgiveness, I can't help but think that it's in part because you've not thought well about who God actually is. If God is who Psalm 139 says he is, then we are fools not to run to him for mercy. So my encouragement for each of us would be to strive to see God rightly. A few months ago, I shared a, a prayer with you during our welcome called A Liturgy of Praise to the King of Creation. It's written by a man named Doug McKelvey. And there's a, a repeated refrain in that prayer where he says, Our thoughts of you have been too small and too few. I just wanted to end by reading this last part. He says, Our thoughts of you have been too small and too few. You are the God of justice, the God of wisdom, the God of mercy, the God of redemption, the Lord of love. All this is true, but our thoughts of you still are too small and few. Our minds are too small to conceive of them all, let alone to contain them. But you were before all things you created, all things in you, and in you all things hold together. There is no corner of creation that you will fail to redeem. You are Lord of lords, King of kings, our King forever. Amen. May we be a people who have big thoughts of God, true thoughts of God. May we think of him often, and may our increased vision of him lead us to repentance, to faith, to proclamation, and to obedience. Let's pray together.